Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. minute where we rejoice in the widescreen aspect ratio of mad max to the road warrior one minute at a time i'm rick and i'm julia and today we're talking about minute five which begins with the warrior max wandering out into the wasteland and it ends with max begrudgingly turning off the blower to conserve fuel so today is fresh eyes friday which means we are joined by our very special guest brad mall Hello, guys. Thanks for the invite. Pleasure to be here. We're so glad to have you, Brad. Tell the the people listening what it is you do on the internet. Uh, I'm sort of all over the place. I uh, also do a minute-by-minute podcast for The Lost World, the sequel to Jurassic Park. We're uh, 35 minutes in over there, and also president of a local Transformers Collectors Club here in Australia. So, busy, busy. (laughs) Very nice. So, you've actually been listening to us for quite a while. I think you joined up when uh, we were right in the middle of season one, right? Yeah, I was, um, I'd been talking to the guys over at the Jurassic Park Minute about doing Mad Max to get my hands in the Minute by Minute podcast idea, but uh, no, then I've discovered you guys had already started and been listening ever since. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> and, we beat you to it. Oh, you, you've I, been doing a great job, so it's fine. I feel like that happens a lot with the Movies by Minute podcasts. Is you get a really good idea in your head and you're thinking, oh man, I want to do this series and then someone swoops in and steals it from you yeah. we had that happen with us in uh harry potter we were oh yeah yep. going back and forth and back and forth and then gary and victoria swooped in and grabbed it from us <laughs> but i hope we haven't been you know doing too poorly as a bunch of americans trying to understand a rich corner of australian film history <laughs> No, it's fine. There's, there's been the little the little bits like uh, the whole panel van station wagon debate and yeah. st- <laughs> stuff like that, but uh, it's good. It's good fun. Yeah, I think I've learned a lot from watching this movie. I think one of the most important lessons I've ever learned doing this project is to never try to put on an Australian accent because I will get it wrong. <laughs> So let's dive into this minute. We left off yesterday with a clip from Mad Max 79 where Max is driving through the night. It's a sequence that is presented in the original movie as kind of a transition between the death of the toe cutter into Max hunting all night, doggedly pursuing his quarry. But it's presented here kind of as a wrap-up to Max finding closure with what happened to him in the first movie. And what's especially interesting about it is that we kind of go from this shot of Max behind the wheel to an open road, and then it all fades to black. And I found that an interesting transition, and it kind of makes me think, you know, maybe we could go a little bit of a, this is all a dream, or Jacob ladder scenario the kind of thing where as soon as it fades to black and we hear that kind of jet engine sound maybe something happened maybe him looking like he's falling asleep behind the wheel maybe he actually did fall asleep behind the wheel and crash and this whole sequence of road warrior and thunderdome (laughs) and fury road maybe it's all him trapped in purgatory well this could all be not real i mean none of it's real because it's a movie but this could all be not real (laughs) (laughs) he died a long time ago yeah (laughs) That is quite a theory. Yeah, I've been sitting on this one for a day or two after I started prepping notes. I started just thinking a little too hard about that idea. And I'm like, this is 
this is kind of weird because you start off with Mad Max 79 and everything is more or less believable. When you think about 1976 in Melbourne, everything looks like that era and everything is very believable. You step into Road Warrior and suddenly the cars are crazy modified. It's desolation everywhere. The outfits. Yeah. Mm. Crazy, insane outfits. Everything is so different that you could almost say, well, you know, maybe this isn't reality. Like the only thing to really counter that would be that seemingly coming from another person, the story being told. If it was, if it was all through Max, then that's quite possibly you could you could think about that. Yeah, I think the the narrator is the one thing that really takes that theory and tosses it out. Yeah. Know, it's, like, if we were in a Fury Road situation where it was actually Max doing the narrating, yep. which is pretty unique for the entire series that Fury Road did that. But yeah, I think just the idea that this is all just a Jacob's Ladder scenario, I, I had way too much fun considering that as a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember being very concerned about Max driving overnight, seeming like he was falling asleep behind the wheel. Mm. So I I believe that it could be a possibility that he did fall asleep behind the wheel and crashed. That seems very reasonable. Well, that could have been how they tied Fury Road in. That just instead of him opening the opening of it, him going to the toilet, he could have been parked on the side of the road and suddenly woke up and realized the last ten years had been a dream. <laughs> <laughs> That would, that would certainly explain why Tom Hardy looks so much younger. Yeah, and why the why the black on black still there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, we have fun here. <laughs> but yeah, going with the idea that everything in this movie is actually happening as part of this story that the narrator is saying that we're not in a crazy it was all a dream or Jacob's ladder scenario. I really like the way they did this transition because the whole first part, the whole first four minutes of this movie is in this strange boxed out aspect ratio, kind of like a four three right dead center in the middle of the screen. And it's an interesting way to display everything because it, you get people like me who will get a digital copy of the DVD and think that, oh man, maybe I got a bad copy. Maybe my DVD is defective. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. And then you throw in the Blu-ray and you see the same thing and you're like, what the heck is happening? And then they fade out from Max driving at night. They come in out of the blower and everything's widescreen. And I'm like, ah, thank goodness. I didn't actually get a bum copy. (laughs) (laughs) I think that different aspect ratio is definitely to separate this part of the movie from the rest of the movie Hmm. to make it completely separate. This is something special. We are doing our exposition on the history. We are showing you all of these images, and then we're going to finish that, be done, we're in the movie now. Now, Brad, have you ever heard of Campfire Theory when it comes to Mad Max? No. So the idea of Campfire Theory is that it posits that every Mad Max story after the first one is not, you know, real history. That it's not dyed-in-the-wool fact, this is actually happening. It's all people telling stories about their singular encounter with this character max yep and so i look at this first four minutes of the movie and i see it in its boxed out aspect ratio i feel like that is history that is stuff that actually happened and as we go out into this full screen thing that's more like the story that we're actively being told like this is the interesting part that the narrator has gotten through the boring book learning stuff and now he gets to be a bit more flowery or imaginative with what he's talking about. Yeah. Because I think this opening scene with Max in the black on black evading his pursuers, I mean, this is probably the best driving we've ever seen him do. (laughs) So we get this fantastic transition of... I I think it sounds like a plane landing. Yeah, it kind of does. Which transitions... 
Yeah. I was just going to say, if you uh, recall back when we first uh, introduced it to the Black on Black and it started, um, it actually sounds like a plane engine starting up there too um, in That's the garage. Right. It just it has that unnatural car sound, I'll say. Yes. The, even in the world of supercharged cars, this mm. one is special. Yep. So the, the plane noise and the car noise turn into these fantastic heavy horns that just give such weight to this moment where we see the Black on Black, we see Max in the car in the middle of a chase and it's like exactly what we want to see yeah this is really i think where brian may's score for this movie really comes into the spotlight because when you think back to the first movie score it was it was good it was interesting i wouldn't say that like there were a ton of themes that were like it's the word i'm looking for exceptional no it's all exceptional i'm trying to to say that the first movie score was not as good as this movie score without sounding detrimental I'm not sure if I'm succeeding. Uh, There's a lot of lulls. It had some lulls yeah. in it. I think what really got me about Mad Max's score is that it just was so subdued where Road Warrior is much more bombastic. Exactly yep. like you said, with the horns coming in after the blower. Yeah, I think there's only one one main theme from the original Mad Max that I sort of can do in my head, and that's uh, when he goes and gets the black on black after uh, the wife's been killed. But uh, it's definitely a step up going into this film. Yeah, I think when you think about Road Warrior versus Mad Max, this is everyone's not necessarily everyone's exact sophomore effort, but being able to revisit this property and just go bigger with it. I think mm. everyone was grateful for a second chance. Yeah, it's, often the, it's often the whole thing when you, you have a original movie come out, then all of a sudden they get greenlit for a sequel and, hey, we got money, let's see what we can do with it, where um, they haven't really gone out of, out of control with the, the extra funds here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, where you've been looking at Lost World these last couple of months, you've probably had a chance to see something very similar, the idea of a creator coming back and doing a sequel for a property. Have you noticed kind of the them trying to outdo the original with Lost World? It's been a while since I've watched it. Definitely. Definitely. It's always, uh, we got the sequel, so now we got to do everything bigger and better. Um, we definitely get that here with the, just the vehicle count um, and the location. But, um, it's, it's, it's good too, because you don't normally get, especially this time in uh, history, you don't normally get the original creators coming back to do the sequel. Um, you look at other stuff like Jaws and um, even Star Wars, Lucas was helping for Empire, but he wasn't uh, directing it. As I say, some people will say that's a, a improvement. <laughs> One of the reasons that Empire is so much better, but that's, a, that's another comment. Conversation that's already been held on another podcast. So yes, I don't yep. think we need to get too much into that. No, no. <laughs> uh, we get the camera coming out of the blower and we get this tableau that we're very familiar with after watching the first movie. This shot of the camera is looking across the hood of the black on black. We got the blower off to Max's left. We got Max behind the wheel. And I feel like it's a very familiar image to mm. us because we got to see it so many times and it's kind of nice. I think we said this yesterday to be able to compare where Max was to where Max is now because we see a lot of wear on the black on black itself we get to see that his hair is a bit more scraggly is is a five o'clock shadow is a little bit more grown out everything more haggard but despite how different everything looks it's still the max that we know from the prologue and from previous movie and i like that they make that connection there yeah something about the black on black that i that i noticed that i really liked is the interior Mm. Uh, or lack of <laughs> it's yeah it's yeah. been altered quite a bit and in a functional way because Max lives in that car he needs space to lay down and sleep at night he needs space for his dog so you know on the outside it's still the black on black a little worse for wear but it's still the black on black mm. on the inside it's gutted yeah 
It is not the same car. I And I think that is a direct reflection of Max. He is not the same person. He has been gutted. Yeah. I like that. The idea that when the black on black was first made, when the underground mechanic and Goose were first showing Max that car, it had the standard police interior with the multiple seats, the back seat intact. Like everything was there and it was kind of plush because, you know, that's just how they made car seats back there. But now that we're in this post-apocalypse, all of that extraneous stuff, like you said, ripped out. He doesn't have a passenger seat because he's a man alone in the world. He doesn't mm. really have a back seat because there's no one that really depends on him outside of his dog. And his dog has a little spot that he curls up in. But I, I like that idea that people's vehicles reflect who they are as individuals. Yes, I think that's something that we are going to want to pay attention to and keep in mind through the rest of the movie, especially as we're, we're first meeting characters. Uh, the, the very first thing that comes to mind is Wes and, and his motorcycle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're going to get a little bit of peek of him before this minute is out. So we'll be able to view him from afar before we get a closer look at him once we uh, think Monday or Tuesday is when we get a really nice close-up look at Vernon Wells there. All right. So, mm. yeah, so the, oh. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, while well, we're on the uh, blower and that, um, I just love the love the age detail they've added to it. They're out to in uh, yeah, back New South Wales, so they got all the red dirt. Um, there's little like bits of dirt stuck in between the blower bolts, and as you were saying before, with the sort of new the new shots in the last movie to the old shots now, like the dirtied window, just the distress on the on the black on black, and we definitely see that when you get the exterior shot from the front with the uh, front nose clip broken, um, mismatched tires, that sort of thing. Yeah, you definitely get the sense that this is probably the one thing that he really cares about in his life now this is his livelihood and so it's the number one thing that he's always making sure is taken care of yep it's max yep. and the black on black together forever <laughs> <laughs> for a little while at for least. a little while at least and i mean the black on black doesn't seem to be in that great shape he's doing the best that he can and i i think that shows the harsh environment that he's been in maybe how long he's been out there but he's making it work Mm. So behind the scenes, after they finished Mad Max in 1976, before they went through all the release and the movie got huge, they actually took the black on black from that movie, took out all the stuff that made it illegal to drive on the road, made it road legal again, and then took it out on tour. Mm. And eventually they lost possession of it. I think they sold it or something like that. Yeah, it sold and so off. so when they came back for the sequel, they had to go find it again, <laughs> buy it once more. And, you know, then they went in and they, they roughed it up. They um, they put new pipes on it, put the big, large gas tanks in the back, took out uh, part of the front end to give it a little bit more ground clearance, make it a little bit more aggressive looking. And I just love the idea that, you know, they took this beautiful car from the first move and said, yeah, let's let's show it off. Let's drive it around. And then I, I don't know the exact time frame of them selling it off, but I almost feel like they sold it. And then probably a week or two later, in my <laughs> imagination. They realized they had made a mistake. Exactly. <laughs> so this is the same car yep. yes, from the yep. first movie. I, I love that idea. It, I think it would have been easy, maybe not more cost effective, but it would have been easy just to replace it with another car. I think casual fans would not have noticed Especially, especially when you damage it up and do what yeah. you're going to do to it later on. It's because um, you're sort of understanding the times over here in the seventies. It's sort of like you've had the gas shortage over there as well in the seventies. Um, but the blower was taken off, the pipes were taken off the side of it because uh, all that stuff we're not allowed to have over here. The fun stoppers stop us. But um, yeah. 
And it, yeah, it went around and done tours for promotion after the film had come out, so it wasn't really promoting anything, but um, it went around to shopping centres or shopping malls, as you'd say, over there, and uh, Australia got to see it, then it's sort of just, no one's interested anymore, we'll sell it off, and yeah, that's the rest is history. <laughs> they actually did make a second one, for one for glamour shots, one for more action-oriented scenes. Mm. And I think the the more action oriented one ended up in a junkyard. I'm not quite sure what the yeah it's probably pretty beat up by the end of the movie. Went yeah. to there's one there's one in Car in the Stars in England. That's that's the proper one. The one that rolled over. It's uh, rumored to be in a junkyard um, out in the desert. There there is a documentary where some uh, fans go searching for it. But mm. yeah, I imagine if you hear rumors about a location where you know the cars from Mad Max are sitting in a junkyard, your first instinct as soon as you hear that is to go try and find it yeah. yeah that is very tempting yeah you know find the car find whoever owns the junkyard and then be like hey you know how much for the scrap <laughs> drag well, it home and try and fix it up that's what they did but the junkyard definitely knows what he's got hidden there um the closest they got to was a tarp about 100 meters away because oh. um, of the chain link fence they couldn't get through it and uh the guy was there with a shotgun and said if you cross that fence <laughs> Wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, welcome to wherever you are. It's a documentary. It's only about an hour, hour long. Um, mm. Some guys in Melbourne, they actually buy a XB coupe and sort of mock it up as the black on black and damage it up. They don't register it. They don't get insurance for it. They don't do nothing. They just drive it out there. They get pulled over by the police and the police don't seem to care, which is odd. <laughs> but um, they go out, do the filming locations, this here where the uh, the lookout is. And um, yeah, and just have a bit of a homage back to Road Warrior and go to Silverton in there black on black and re- relive some of these scenes with the chase later on and here. So it used to be on eBay. I don't know. It was only the local documentary company that done it, so I don't know how many comp- copies are out there, but it's definitely worth ch- checking into if you uh, want to see some more of this countryside. Yeah. What's the uh, the thing called again? Uh, welcome to Wherever You Are. Okay. So yeah, it might be on eBay, it might be on, if you're lucky, someone it, might have uploaded it. But yeah. yeah, it might be YouTube. You might be able to find it. If you can find it. Yeah. Highly recommend it. Yeah. So after we reconnect with Max and the Black on Black, we get a shot. This is our first shot of the dog, <laughs> Max's companion throughout most of this movie. And he's just kind of sitting there next to him in the Black on Black as they're being pursued by these aggressors. Now, we don't actually get a name for the dog. It's a very similar situation to the dog in the first movie, who we ended up naming Toby. <laughs> just yes, because we didn't want to we... keep calling him the dog. We had to yeah. call him something. Yeah, yeah. I believe it's called... <laughs> I believe it's called. I thought he says dog in the in the film, but we'll definitely get to that minute when we get there. Yeah. So this this dog, this trusty companion, he's a blue healer, which is also referred to as an Australian cattle dog. It's breed found most commonly in farming areas or of rural Australia, and it's not as common in residential areas. It's also been bred and used in the U.S. as a cattle dog, apparently. And I'm reading this from an entry on MadMaxMovies.com. They are about as available as German shepherds or poodles here in the U.S., so apparently not that hard to find. The This dog specifically was not actually hurt in the process of making the film, because you know, that hmm. would be cruel. But after the film, it actually went to go live with one of the stunt coordinators and his wife, who was the animal handler, um, Dale and Max Aspen. And they lived, or the dog lived with them for a while, and it just so happened that the dog was just a natural 
in front of the camera. And so he eventually went to go live with another one of the stuntmen, Jerry Gosla, who was the guy from the first Mad Max movie who had the longest stunt jump in the Guinness Book of World Records for, I think, a decade or two when he did that goose crash jump. Mm-hmm. So the dog yeah. left stardom but stayed with stars. <laughs> yeah, no, the cattle dog, it's... Um the blue heel i couldn't imagine a better dog for him to have as a companion um especially with what we see later on some of the aggression in him uh they're just they're a great dog to have in the back of a ute over here to pretty much be on guard um if you get within a meter of that ute and that dog doesn't know you you're uh, in trouble <laughs> they don't they don't normally bark they just wait for you to get close and then they'll grab it <laughs> <laughs> which lie in wait yeah yeah and you can see they, they're cheeky they they know exactly what they're doing they'll, they'll just sit there and watch her and out the corner of their eye and just lunge <laughs> which is so- does not not this for kids but uh definitely good for tool protection in your car <laughs> Now, on the Mad Max Wikia, which, of course, is the wiki for the Mad Max series, they tell a story about how George Miller originally thought that the dog would be like a three-legged dog called Trike, and Hmm. just so it would be a dog that's damaged in not exactly the same, but similar to the way that Max is damaged. But they ran into a bit of an issue because finding a three-legged dog that was able to be trained enough to perform on camera was very difficult. Yes. So (laughs) he made the concession to get a four-legged dog. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, apparently they auditioned over 100 different animals before they uh, visited a dog pound in Yaguna. Am I saying that right? I It doesn't sound familiar. Um. <laughs> in that case, I'm probably saying it wrong. Yeah. But anyway. No, I might be right. It was in this dog pound that they found the blue healer that they eventually selected for the movie. And as they were looking around at the dogs, this dog fetched a rock and brought it to Miller. And so he kind of figured that if he was that easy to play with, that he would also be as easy to train. Hmm. And, you know, as we see over the course of this movie, they made the right choice. An interesting note about the dog is that before they could take the dog from the pound, they had to go through a bit of a hurdle because there's an RSPCA rule that says that the dogs have to be desexed upon leaving the pound. Yeah. But Miller was like, well, you can't desex the dog because they don't have that process in the post-apocalypse. you got to leave the dog whole for this movie. And they went back and forth and back and forth, and eventually they let the dog go with just a vasectomy. Not a complete desexing, just a vasectomy. Which I'm sure, Compromise. I'm sure the yeah. dog appreciated that. <laughs> no, we do get some great stuff from him later on. It was a good call. Yeah, I, I wonder if there was any calls to vets during pre-production. How easy it is to remove a leg from a dog? <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine what it would be like receiving a phone call like that. I think it would probably be very similar. We had a situation where we tried to adopt a cat once, but our landlord wanted the cat declawed. Then we learned what was involved with declawing a cat, which is basically <laughs> like chopping the tips of fingers off. Yep. The toady is very familiar with that process. But we'll <laughs> discover him in about half an hour or so. Mm. And it's like once you figure out what's involved with that, you're like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to touch that process with a ten foot pole. I'm going to avoid <laughs> that as best I can. So, yep. One thing that was a bit of a quirk with the dog, though, is that he was easily startled by loud roaring engines. So they actually put cotton in his ears. <laughs> to keep him calm. So all of these scenes you see with the dog, if there's a loud engine nearby, they 
packed his ears so he didn't have to hear it. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting you say that because where he's seated is pretty much right on top of where those exhaust pipes are. So he's here in that interceptor uh, at full noise through that door with no insulation or panelling on it. Um, but also while we're in the interior, quickly, uh, the blue police light's gone. Um, so you, you know straight up that he's uh, not the law because I don't think he's got a badge on his uniform either. I think that's also gone. Um, yeah, I imagine he would have ditched that first chance he got because he did technically quit. Yeah, and it'd be a target too if he's a law a law man. I mean, bikies and puckish rogues alike, they, they didn't like the police enough when society was all in one place mm, in peace. Yep. So I imagine in the post-apocalypse, they looked down even worse. Yeah, exactly. So moving outside of the car, we get to see that Max is being pursued by a couple of ne'er-do-wells, one in kind of a dune buggy and the other one in more of a traditional vehicle, more enclosed. So according to the Mad Max movies vehicles page for Mad Max 2, the dune buggy is a VW-based modified Sanrail kit car utilizing an early, possibly late 60s VW single-axle drivetrain and suspension. And then they note, of course, the vehicle might also have been scratch-built without the kit. It's, it's hard to tell from a distance, especially considering how smashed up it gets. Mm. The other car, on the other hand, is what's called a Landau, which is similar to a Falcon XB, but released as a luxury model under the LTD banner and not marketed as part of the Falcon range. They were manufactured from 1973 to 1976, but very few were actually produced. The car was not a great success commercially. The design used a coupe body with Australian LTD front sheet metal grille, pop-up lights, modified rear quarter window, and LTD interior. Specifications include a 351 4V engine, pressed 8.9 to 1, and BHP 290 at 5,000 RPM as standard. I understood maybe about half of what I just said. <laughs> Luckily, the guy who writes on MadMaxMovies.com knows exactly what he's talking about, which is why we keep going back to him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's sort of... It was Australia's sort of uh, attempt at uh, the two-door muscle car industry, just like the God have the F, the, uh, the SS Camaro or the Chev and the... Uh, Trans Am, that sort of stuff. Um, some fails, some hit it, but uh, yeah, that's history. <laughs> I kind of like how in the vehicles that are pursuing Max in this minute, you've got the one that's really rugged looking, the the dune buggy, which kind of seems kitted together like someone would put together out on the road. And you've got Wes on his motorcycle, who we're going to see in a moment or two. But then the Landau is kind of the antithesis to the black on black. It's another big black scary car with some stuff coming up out of the hood. But at the same time, it's sort of a bastard of the black on black it's similar but it's just different enough that it's just not the same mm. and as we see these cars coming up behind max we go into one of them and we actually see one of the drivers he's wearing like a silver helmet and a pair of aviators and a leather face mask and i was looking on the wikia about this character specifically because he reminded me very much of the movie poster for mad max mm. the the character dressed in the leather with the helmet. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, which he's, uh, he's said was Goose and not actually Max because of the broken leg or the damaged leg. Yeah, how they how they put together the posters for the original Mad Max movie was pretty interesting. It just, you expected to see one thing and then you saw another. I think the later versions after the movie has been out for several years, those usually came out a lot better as far as the overall quality is concerned. Mm. But this guy specifically, and as I was looking in the Mad Max wiki, I found that the Lord Humongous, who we are still very far out from meeting, it's, it's going to be a while before we get to see him for the first time, but his horde has like kind of mini factions inside of it, and one of those mini factions are called the Bad Cops, and that's 
not an official canon name. It's kind of one that the fans have applied to them. And these are the guys that they kind of look like they're driving old police cars. They wear the leather with the aviators. Like, they have that style of uniform. And you can almost look at it where Max is being pursued by a guy who maybe he killed a cop and took his gear. Maybe he was a former police officer. You know, someone like Rupert Charlie, you could see them joining up with the Raider gang. They didn't seem very loyal to the MFP in the same way that Fifi was. Mm. But you kind of get this sense that, okay, well, maybe is Max is being pursued a little bit by his past, if you want to get really analytical with it. But where we're moving so quickly in this scene, we probably don't want to get that deep into it. Because you could argue that he's been running from his occupation as a police officer ever since his wife and child died. Yeah, and you could also see it as uh, he's sort of... He's got some uh, serious competition here with another another driver, another police driver. Um, although it's more of the motorcycle um, get up than the than the, the interceptor, but uh, yeah. And speaking of motorcycles, this next shot after we see the bad cop is where a motorcycle rounds the car to take the lead, and that is. Wes and the Golden Boy on their motorcycle, and they're at a distance, but for reference, Mad Max Movies says that Wes is riding Kawasaki Z1900 or possibly a 1000. It's made up to look like a Suzuki Katana 1100cc 1981 model, which was new at the time. Now, I don't know. I, I ride Kawasaki's all the time, so I'm rather partial to them, but I'm also partial to the more cruiser model as opposed to the more street bike model. Yep. So I'm not too, you know, good at identifying them at a glance. But without getting too bogged down in the details, let's get back into this chase. I found with, you know, one black vehicle running away from multiple pursuers, I found this very reminiscent to the opening 5-10 minutes of Mad Max where the MFP officers were chasing down the Night Rider. Yeah, the script's yes. being flipped. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's very reminiscent and I mean it's just a smart way to open a movie with something exciting. In this case, it tells us a lot about Max's current state, and we get to see, we get the we get caught up with Max while we get this great action scene. And it's also another opportunity for us to really get reminded that Max is a much better driver than the people that are trying to take him out. The main downfall of the Knight Rider was that Max was able to break him with Max's mm. driving ability. Well, Max is able to do something very similar to his pursuers in this minute. Yeah, he when outwits they, them, he distracts them. and Yeah, when they're coming up the road and there's a giant wreckage in the way, Max is very deft and very able to just get around it without a single scratch on the interceptor. Meanwhile, you've got the Landau that just comes in and plows right through a piece of wreckage. Wes ramps over it, and the dune buggy's like, well, I don't want to do this, and it goes off on the side of the road and kind of follows along in the dirt. It's just, it's a way to to show that these are all people with very varying abilities, but they're all still pretty good at what they do. Right. Everybody, everybody makes it through this obstacle relatively well. Yeah. You know, because there's no damage from driving through this area. Yeah. Because everyone who would not have been able to maneuver through this type of obstacle would have has already, already been, been scavenged and picked over and everything yeah. like that. Speaking of which, real quick, just want to mention, that the screenplay, the chase starts out, there's description of how this chase started. Max comes upon the scene where there's a large group of scavengers and apparently they have attacked and killed um, the inhabitants of a farmhouse and they're picking apart, they're cannibalizing the farm equipment and taking the food. And as soon as they see him, 
they jump into their vehicles and start chasing him. So originally, the chase involved many, many more vehicles until only these three could keep up with Max, That's which is the point at which we rejoin what's actually in the movie. Mm. Yeah, because it sort of it definitely mirrors the uh, the end of Toe Cutter very closely. He comes over the rise, sees the smoke before he sees any of the carnage ahead. Um, although in uh, Mad Max, there's more the skid marks on the road that tipped him off that there was something ahead and to uh, break. But um, he, yeah, because he's got the skills he was able to avoid the collision where toe cutter just lit on fire and oh not right sorry yeah. lit on fire and went rocketing into a trailer but um yeah and he as you said like the buggy not i don't need this i'm taking a wide berth around it all and they all get through in their own their own separate ways um not so much skill because of skill more so because of uh luck on yeah. two accounts yeah but either luck or even just better equipment like you see how the landau is able to punch through the burned out wreck of a car and just keep on going. Whereas you think back to the first movie and Roop and Charlie are trying to keep up and they end Mm. up smashing through the back of a blue van and it tears up the front of their car and they're barely able to to move after that. I mean, they're out of the chase at that point. Yeah. So... Cars are now reinforced, armored, and better equipped for this wasteland. Yeah. And the black on black could have easily done the exact same thing, but Max knows if he takes damage to the front, um, as we've seen with Jesse in the van, if, if you do any damage to the radiator, that's that's it, you're done. Mm-hmm. Um, especially out there in the desert, you'll you'll cook cook the engine real quick. And cooking the engine in the middle of the desert is the last thing that he wants to do. Yes. So as they or as the four of them get past this initial obstacle, we cut back in inside the car and we see that max's dog is yawning and <laughs> i love that it's like the dog is bored yeah i think there's a lot of people that say that over time pets start to take on the mannerisms and personalities of their owners and seeing the dog yawn like this you get the sense that it's not necessarily routine for max but it's also not challenging to the point that he's worried mm. i think his biggest challenge is fuel yeah i think by the by the end of this minute his fuel light comes on yeah and it's actually after the dog yawns we get a shot of max and then we get this red light that starts blinking on his face and as we look down onto where the console is we get to see that his fuel which has the maximum capacity i think of about 200 liters is down in the red zone it's not quite as full as he would like it to be so i love it he kind of huffs reaches down turns off the supercharger we see the blower stop spinning max kind of looks to his side and that's where the the minute wraps up and i love that he's in complete control of the situation because he's got that blower going the black on black is such an impressive machine that he can just go for days Mm. and just not have to worry about anything but the the minute his fuel drops that low and he's got to kill it well now he's got now he's in the thick of it now he's got to compete on their level right now it's a challenge yeah. yeah, well, he's got no idea where where the next fuel stop's going to be, where he's going to be able to get more. Um, I think you also get the shot of the uh, dog looking quite concerned here as well. But, uh, the yawn definitely disappears into a... <laughs> Sort of, yes. <laughs> but, um, it's sort of he knows he's heard that that uh, that alarm before, and um, out there it can be a death sentence it's, if you haven't got fuel. You're uh, you're stuck. Yeah, I like that where fuel is such a big part of this movie that it's not some ethereal thing. It's not some far out resource that Max doesn't have to worry. This is like an active thing that he has to keep in mind because like. We never see Max get fuel in the first movie. I think the only instance of them stopping at a gas station is when Goose is grabbing breakfast in the mm. morning and he mm-hmm. happens to be parked next to a pump. Like this idea.
idea that nobody has fuel. It was the groundwork was laid in the prologue. Now we're looking at it actively affecting our main character here in you know the first week of minutes. I think that that the issue of fuel came up in a, in, in a very real way so quickly signifies what this story is going to be about. Mm. It's definitely hit on later on in future minutes where uh, how important the fuel is. Um, and it's sort of... I call it the high heel debate in Jurassic World. Um, it's the one conceit with the Mad Max movies you got to get over. If, if um, The need for fuel, being able to find fuel, if you can get over that, and the fact they're all driving V8 fuel guzzlers to start with, um, if you can get over that conceit, then you're, you're fine for the rest of the film and the rest of the franchise. Because the XB, like, they're, they're not great on fuel. Um, being the V8, you probably got... If I can do the conversion right, you probably got about 600 miles um, to a tank. Now, he's got the, the added tanks on the back, which would get him a lot further, but you have to be able to fill them. Mm. Um, like, having the room is one thing, mm. but having the juice to fill it, something else entirely. That's, that's for that one-time score you come across and you find a vehicle that's got a full tank. Um, but even the standard tanks on cars over here are 75, 60, 75 litres, so you, you're going to find a couple of them to be able to fill those two big tanks on the back. Mm. And then you've got the weight. Um, every... every, every a kilogram for every liter you put in those tanks plus the weight themselves like there's a there's a good reason that car's been stripped out he's he's been thinking about weight um and to be able to evade evade with a heavy car yep you gotta kind of balance that you know you want something that's heavily armored and strong but you also want something that's fast and easy to maneuver mm. yeah you, you gotta balance that out and of course max having the history that he does would be able to do that that pretty much wraps up minute five but since we're here at the end of the week we want to do a bit of a weekend recap to kind of talk about what we've seen over the this past week just to refresh everyone's memory so we started off with the main titles and the starting credits that was monday and then on tuesday we got some more behind the scenes credits as well as the beginning of the narrated stock footage wednesday was all stock footage and we really got into the nitty-gritty of how the world fell apart and then yesterday was more of a direct visual recap of the first movie kind of reminding us where our hero came from and what kind of state he's in as we join him in today's minute now brad i sent you the minutes from earlier in this week was there anything that stood out to you as noteworthy that you wanted to bring up um i just the uh, the overall narration um one of my biggest issues with it is just the uh the, like the world war ii stock footage um, sort of puts across the point that maybe the world was already on the downcline from uh, after World War Two and never really picked back up again. But um, that that would go into a uh, an altered future or something. Maybe we didn't win the war or something. You might be able to look at it that way. But um, I just love this this whole recap. Uh, how the world fell apart. Um, You've got the uh, like the burning flame effect behind the footage as well, um, and, and what what they're explaining how the leaders talked, the few, the oil just stopped pumping. Um, it's it's all exactly what would happen now. A lot of cars nowadays have run on liquefied gas, so oil isn't as big a dependency as what it once was. But um, for the time, it's it's a great introduction. It's probably my favorite introduction of the four films. Uh, just getting us back into this world. Yeah, it really paints a vivid. Picture. And you mentioned the idea that the leaders talking, talking. I like the the setup of you know the nations, the great warrior tribes. They fought as hard as they could, and literally until they could fight no more, until the engines 
could not run because they didn't have the resources. And only at that point did they try and resort to diplomacy, but by then it was too late. Yeah. I think it's pretty spot on for how people can be. And it's not it's not as positive a view of the future as Star Trek for sure. <laughs> but it's a view for sure. So Brad, before we wrap up for today, I just want to say it's been great having you. Thank you so much for coming on. You are our first fresh eyes for, for this movie and it's been uh, great having you on here. No, it's been great. It's been fun and it's a uh, a great spot to sort of come on with the uh, recap of the first five minutes and the minute five itself. Um, we're getting uh, headlong into the action here and I was almost, or I was disappointed it uh, ended with the blinking light. <laughs> <laughs> so before we do go, where can people find more of you? Me and Dave do The Lost World Minute. We're uh, thelostworldminute.com. We've gone on Facebook and uh, Instagram under those that handle. Um, or transformerscca.com is me, Transformers Club, here uh, online. So Excellent, excellent. Well, hopefully people will check you out all over those places you just listed. And as for us, we're going to take the weekend and we'll see everybody on Monday. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. Please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share on social media to help others find the show. Thank you for joining us for Minute 5 of The Road Warrior. Have a great weekend.